back to the Blue Jays Way podcast. This is season two, episode two. Uh, I am Tyler Prosick, your host, joined always by Curtis Martin. Uh, and today we're pleased to welcome a writer and podcaster for Sportsnet, host of the Blair and Barker podcast and Jays Talk on Sportsnet, Jeff Blair. Welcome to the Blue Jays Way, Jeff. How's it going? It's going well, thanks. Good to be here. Awesome. And I think uh, Curtis is uh, going to get us started with a couple questions. Yeah, Jeff. Um, obviously, you know, we're all waiting for this uh, lockout to end. And I think a big question on Blue Jays fans' minds right now is, what is the next move for Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro in building this team who's looking like a true contender in the AL this year? What do you think is that first big move that they need to make coming out of this break? It's it's interesting. I thought about this a little bit because I think most people assume that once the lockout ends – there will be this mass rush of free agent signings, which I'm sure, I'm sure there will be, but teams haven't been able to talk to free agents during the lockout, but they have been able to talk to other teams. And that makes me think that we will get an idea very soon, whether or not there's any fire behind the smoke of all those, all those Jose Ramirez uh, rumors to the blue Jays. I mean, I look, I, like any any Jays fan could look at the lineup and go, you need at least one more bat. That bat should play second or third base. It should be left-handed uh, to add a little balance to the lineup. A switch hitter would be ideal. So I, I think you'll see the Jays move for that big impact bat. And then whatever they can do to address the pitching after that, be it uh, relief, or maybe even another starter. I think that's where you'll see this team go. But to my way of thinking, they need at least one bat. And, you know, you may also see the Jays, for example, if they do make a deal for somebody like Ramirez, if there's still some money left, you may see them look at somebody like Michael Conforto. I know that's a name that they've been interested in, in air quotes, for the past couple of years. And I think they see him as a bit of a bounce back candidate. So, that's what I expect to see from this team. I, I I would not at all be surprised if we see the Jays make a move in the trade market first before the free agent market. I was just, uh, I was in class a couple hours ago and I was reading up of uh, some of your work and I was reading um, the the wide discussion of everyone knows what's going to happen with Randall Gritchick. Um, do you think post-lockout a Randall Gritchick move could be one of the first moves to open up some money? Yeah, I, I think you have to look at what Randall Gritchick is and what would the team that acquires Randall Gritchick, uh, why would they be doing that? And I, and I think the biggest reason is if you're the Blue Jays, you would approach a team and say, look, we'll do this deal. If you take Randall Gritchick and however much money he has left, we will increase the quality of prospect you're going to get. So it's almost as if Randall Gritchick in some ways, I don't want to say he's being held hostage, but if you are the Blue Jays and you think you can add a little more balance to that lineup, I can see the Jays approaching a team and saying, look, we will trade you. I don't think they're going to trade – uh, Gabriel Marino or, or Elvis Martinez. I can see them trading Jordan Groshans. Maybe I could see the Jays saying, Hey, we will trade you Jordan Groshans. If you agree to pick up Randall Gritchick's uh, contract as well, or Randall Gritchick and we'll kick, kick in half the value or, or however it's going to work out. And I think when it's all said and done in a perfect world for the blue Jays, you would have, um, that middle of the order bat, let's just say for argument's sake, Jose Ramirez, you would have replaced Randall Gritchick with Michael Conforto, not going to play center field, but he does give you a little more of that balance. And then, you know, if you want a defensive specialist in center field, you can 
for, for, for the games George Springer isn't going to pay, play, you can pick a you you can pick a guy to put in there. So that's that's kind of where I see this this going. Uh, and, and I think Randall Gritchick is kind of the price an acquiring team is going to have to pay in order to get that top prospect. I think a lot of people look at Lourdes Gurriel Jr. as the guy off the roster the Jays would include in any deal. But you know, if you're the Blue Jays, there's a value to that contract. He's still cheap. And he's going to be cheap for another couple of years. I think if you ask most Blue Jays fans, who would you rather have in your lineup, Randall Gritchick or Lourdes Gurriel Jr.? I think most of them would say Lourdes Gurriel Jr. So that's kind of how I see this thing, how I see this thing playing out. Um, if you can get, if Randall Gritchick hit left-handed, then we might be having a different argument. But I, I, I really think that everything Ross Atkins and Charlie Montoyo said after the season and subsequent to that really does indicate that they need a little more diversity in that lineup. And that can mean a left-handed hitter. It may mean a right-handed hitter with a different skill set than some of the right-handed hitters we are, we've already seen in this team. But yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any doubt that Randall Gritchick is a guy. If you put the Jays up against the wall and said, who do you want to move in order to make that big move? I would be willing to bet they'd say Randall Gritchick. And I think, you know, despite it seeming pretty like concrete of who your three outfielders are for the Blue Jays with Teoscar, Lourdes and Springer, most likely going to be manning the outfield. Do you think that that fourth uh, outfield spot could be one of those uh, big positions that a prospect could come up and claim out of spring training when that does end up happening? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I tend to think that that given the way the Jays view the construction of this uh, uh, of this lineup uh, and and given the way they they view their timeline look i don't think there's any chance a guy like aralvis martinez is going to come up uh this year i still i will admit i do not know what to make of gabriel marino and playing him at third base it makes me think that maybe there's a move to be made with with one of their catchers but I think if you're the Jays right now, you want to go into the year with the best 25 man or 20, whatever it is this year, the best roster, the best active roster you have. And I, I, you know, I think they'll all, they'll be able to fill in around the edges with free agents or maybe, I don't know, somebody like a Josh Palacios or somebody like that. Uh, you may see them, you may see them do that. But I would be surprised if you see any of their prospects up here right out of the gate. Although everybody that I speak to tells me that Gabriel Marino is a guy who is going to, I mean, he's, he's going to call the ball. He will determine when the Jays need to make a move with him. And that's based on what we've seen the past couple of years. I, I think he's going to be knocking at the door very soon. Yeah, I was going to say, and uh, was it the Arizona fall league or something where he was playing? He was just, just destroying the ball is just crazy really good yeah and i talked to i talked to a couple of scouts who saw him uh who 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 were at the arizona fall league and they all raved about it not so much about his bat which i think we all we all realized was good but i had a couple of them talk about his work behind the plate as well just his footwork behind the plate the way he sets a target and, you know, they talked about all the things you want to hear people talk about the catcher presentation framing and all this. And they, the, the impression I got is that he'd made a lot of strides in his, his defensive game as well. And um, I, I don't think anybody doubts that the bat is the bat is there, but th these two guys in particular that I talked to who are not with the blue Jays were both raving about him. They, they said he was, he was, he was far and away one of the most impressive players they saw down there and i think one of the bigger pieces of news that we've got in the last couple of days is that the players and owners have come together in these talks while they are going slow things are coming out that they are going to have the potential where it seems like unless something changes that the ban is going to be uh at least gotten rid of and that mm -hmm. they're going to add a pitch clock what do you think of these uh two moves for the game of baseball i mean <laughs> I'm probably the wrong person to ask about this because I, the game, the games drag on. I, I get that. The games are, we watch a lot of those Sunday night games in particular, and they seem to go on forever and ever and ever. I am not a fan of 
banning shifts. Pitch clock, my concern is injuries. And everybody that I have spoken to has experience with this. People like Morgan Sword at the commissioner's office. We've interviewed him a couple of times. They've had a pitch clock in place at different minor league levels. There's no indication that it increases risk to pitchers. So I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with the pitch clock. I don't necessarily like banning the shift. Uh, I understand that every, look, every sport, every sport has to make rules and change rules when it comes to defense, right? We've seen it in the NBA. Uh, you know, we, we, we've seen it with the trapezoid and hockey, all this, all, all of this. I still like leaving as much strategy in the game as you possibly can. That's one reason I like the ghost runner on second base and extra innings. I loved it because, well, we you, we saw firsthand watching the Blue Jays that it, it's it it almost seemed at times as if Charlie Montoyo changed the way he managed in extra innings with the ghost runner, and it it kind of creates a sense of action. It creates a sense of urgency on the part of the manager, and I think that that really, to me at least, really really just makes that extra inning even more important. So I like things that increase the number of gears that need to be turning in order for the game to get done. I will be fascinated to see if the shift is done away with. Are we going to see moving defenses now? Someone pointed out, are we going to see guys crisscrossing? They're going to have to wait until the ball is thrown. Are we basically going to see like motion in in, in baseball with with – baseball defenses. I do know this, that whatever change they make in that area, I guarantee you the Tampa Bay Rays have already figured out what they're going to do. So the, if they ban the shift, that first time you play the Rays, you know they're going to come up with something funky that we've never seen before. Like, I, I don't know, have the catcher go out behind second base or something like that. Um, because they're the Rays and they will think of, of a way to, to, uh, to beat it. But the pitch clock, I'm okay with. I didn't think I would be, but everything I've heard and talking to people who've managed in games and the pitch clock is there. They've all said the same thing. They said it takes the pitchers a while to get used to it. And then you don't even notice it. Yeah. The, both those rules are, are interesting for me. I mean, like, like you said, the pitch clock, like when I first heard the idea, I wasn't that big of a fan, but um, now, you know, like it's fine, but Mm -hmm. the shift, the shift also, it bothers me as well because like, you know, guys like Joey Gallo, who, verbally was upset about it uh the other day and then it was like the next day they were like yeah we're probably gonna ban the shift um the best players in the game don't have a problem with the shift they still get the ball in play like so that's not a fan of the shift either but or banning the shift um but moving on to uh another lockout discussion uh the cbt seems mm-hmm. to be the biggest challenge in in the next agreement where do you see the negotiations going and how strong do you believe the players will hold out for that greater increase, even though the owners uh, up their offer by like 8 million for the first for 2022? Yeah, I think the, uh, the owners up their offer to the point where it was close to what the, the, the players wanted. Here's the issue from the player's point of view. And I, and I, I completely get it. And, and I will say my default position is generally that I tend to side with, I tend to side with the players in, in these situations. So um, from the player's point of view, it's not so much what the CBT looks like in the first year. It's what it looks like in the last year of the deal. And, and the issue that I have seen or the issue that I saw with the owner's original offer is there's just there's not a lot of growth between that first and fifth year. And we know, I mean, look, they just announced a deal with Apple TV. We know that legalized uh, sports wagering and gaming. That is a huge cash cow for the owners. Imagine what this, imagine what the revenue streams in Major League Baseball are going to look like five years from now. I mean, we're almost getting to the point where you don't need fans in the stands to make money. We'll always have fans, but that's a simple fact between TV money, streaming money, and legalized gaming. The fan in the stands almost becomes it just it it's it's not as it's not as important as it used to be for baseball so 
that's what I think the players are aware of right now. The players have heard for the last five years that they were screwed in the last CBA. And it's like anything else. When someone spends five years telling you that you were taken out to the woodshed and beaten up, the next time it comes around to redress the situation, you're going to take a, a harder stance. And, and if the players see a CBT structure that doesn't increase that much from the first year to the fifth year, they are rightly going to look at it as a salary cap. They're going to say, well, hang on. If it's at X this year and it's at X plus two in year five, but your revenues have gone through the roof, how does that benefit us? And that to me is going to be the issue. So when I see these numbers come out, I'm not necessarily going to pay attention to the first year. I'm going to pay attention to the last year and maybe the midpoint of the CBT. And if there's a little less of a gap between the sides, then, then I think we'll see that they're really onto something, but I completely get the player's point of view here. Um, if there isn't a growth in the CBT from year one to year five, you are essentially treating it as a salary cap and you're removing the pretense of it being anything other than a salary cap. And you can't, if that happens, it's going to look like a loss for the players. And I don't think the players, I don't think the players want to be in that position again. I, I think you make a really interesting point about how, you know, in terms of money making, which let's be real, that's all the owners really care about at this point. The fans are kind of not in the equation anymore. Whereas in past lockouts, they were one of the sole reasons for the owners gaining revenue. Do you think that's the reason why I think maybe not on both sides, but maybe a little bit more on the owner's side, we're seeing more of a, you know, disregard with them trying to get rid of games at the beginning of the season and them being okay with, you know, Hey, if we have to take out a whole season, we'll take out a whole season. Yeah, I I mean, I think part of the issue is, and, and I will admit, you know, this is, I covered the 1994 strike and social media didn't exist then. Fans are way different now than they were back in, in, uh, back in 1994. Uh, so I don't think you can necessarily compare the reaction of the fans after 94 to what we're going to see now. I will tell you, I just, I don't know how fans are going to react. My, typically, I think fans always talk a big game. They say, ah, oh, pox in both their houses. I'm never going back to a ball game, yada, yada. Well, game against the Yankees in August, I'm willing to bet that there's going to be a ton of people at the Rogers Center, regardless of who's upset uh, at, at, this, at this point in time. But, you know, what I think has happened in the past uh, this this has probably gone on since the early 2000s. There has been a real change at the ownership level. And baseball ownership has gone from sort of the family type of an owner, you know, the, the guy whose only business was owning baseball, to a guy who owns a baseball team and, and runs a hedge fund, right? So you don't have that you don't necessarily have that personal connection, I don't think, from owner and fan. And when you couple that with the fact that everybody bases every decision in baseball now on analytics, right? What do analytics do? What do they admit that they do? Well, they take emotion out of the equation, right? They take emotion out of the equation when it comes to a player. So I think there's that, the, the, what we've seen and what we see with this ownership group is generally an ownership group that is, um, just kind of removed from you know, almost from the fan base. And I don't, I don't think there's any way around that. Uh, it, I was thinking about this when the, the lockout first hit and I think I wrote this as well. It used to be so great in 1994 because you knew that Jerry Reinsdorf was the devil incarnate. Jerry Reinsdorf was the guy that was, that was wrecking everything. You knew which owners to hate. You knew which owners to like, like Peter Angelos, who was very pro player. And you knew the guys who were in the middle and really didn't care. But there was that, there was that realization that you were dealing with, with human beings and individuals. And I think, I think for fans, for fans, it, it provided a little different context than we're seeing right now. I guarantee you there are baseball fans who wouldn't know their owner if he walked into the room and sat down beside him or slapped him in the face. I just, I, I guarantee, I mean, I don't, 
Bruce Sherman could walk in the room. I don't know a lot of these guys. I don't even know what the name of the, the name of the controlling partner of the Kansas City Royals is. You know, and and that's something that I think we're we're realizing now with this group of owners. I found it really interesting that uh, I think it was I think it was Evan Drellich and Ken Rosenthal reported about the four owners who were hardcore against the CBA, against lowering the CBA. Uh, you know, there was the Arizona Diamondbacks. It didn't surprise me. None of the names in there really surprised me. But what did surprise me is Dick Monfort of Colorado, who everybody said going into this was going to be the guy that was going to screw this up. He wasn't one of the owners that spoke out against that. So we, we, we don't really know what the internal politics look like with the ownership group right now. And I think that may be, that may be in some ways bothering fans. I think fans don't know where to focus their anger. And one of the things I will say about Rob Manfred, he's always been very good at this. He's always been very good at this. And Bud Selig was as well. One thing you have not heard is you haven't heard Rob, heard Rob Manfred or the owners personalize this, right? You've heard the players personalize Rob Manfred, but Rob Manfred hasn't mentioned Max Scherzer. He hasn't, he hasn't done anything to immediately impact the product because the players are the product. And he hasn't, you know, he's gone out there instead owning a baseball team that, that it's not as, as great an economic investment as people think it is all the typical stuff you hear from owners, uh, the players association, they need to give more, but they haven't, they haven't personalized it. So, and that's something I know that Rob Manford believes in because at the end of the day, you know, it's going to happen. If this ends tonight, if it ends in two weeks time, it's going to be the players who save the game, right? It's going to be the players who are going to put the product on the field that fans are either going to like or not like. So, I think that's, I know that's kind of a, a kind of a long-winded answer, but it's, it, to me, it's, it's once this is all said and done and we can maybe, maybe talk to people behind the scenes, we might get an idea of what happened at the ownership level. And, you know, I'm sure Rob Manfred, when this is done, I'm sure he's going to make notes and who was with him, who was against him. And, you know, he'll learn from this going, going forward for the next CBA. Mm -hmm. just as a, a little update uh, as you were talking there evan drillich actually tweeted it's wait and see mode um according to his twitter um which is go. kind of what it's been the entire time but only um, once right it's wait yeah. And see. <laughs> yeah just uh Fool a quick 10 times shame on me yeah like <laughs> a quick uh flip to the roger center uh yes. you mentioned the Roger Center a little bit um the renovations i don't know if you've seen the picture of the new scoreboard that's been put up uh it, it's gorgeous but um when we talked with Jamie Campbell, he gave us a little bit of uh, what he would personalize about the Rogers Center. What what do you want to see done to the Rogers Center and the renovations? The biggest thing I want to see is, and I'm not a structural engineer. I don't even know if this is possible. Get rid of some of the concrete. Um, <laughs> you know, open up. And I know I, I, I'm trying to remember when I had... Stephen Brunt and I had a conversation with Mark Shapiro. It's got to be four or five years ago or when he first came here. And we were, and we were just talking, I think it was on the air. We were just talking about, okay, realistically, what can you do? What can you do with this place? And he talked about wanting to bring some more natural light into the concourse to open it up a bit. Uh, that for me would be the number one priority. Open up those concourses somehow. So, you know, if you, eventually we're going to see this turn into a bit like Yankee Stadium where everything is sponsored, right? You've got the Mercedes-Benz Benz Lounge. You've got, and you're right now, you had the WestJet flight deck, but you're going to have all these little areas sponsored, which is, of course, going to mean more revenue for the team. And I think in order to make that work, you've got to open things up a bit so people want to stay there. You know, one of the things that, that and this is genius, the, the Golden State Warriors did in their, new, in their new arena, is you can go and have dinner in the arena while the game's on without seeing the game. 
So in other words, it, it's a restaurant, it's open. It's not necessarily like sight lines, but the idea is to turn it into, or whatever it's called, sight lines, whatever the restaurant's called, what's called now. The idea is to turn it into something that generates revenue in ways other than simply people sitting in the seat looking at the ballpark. And in order to do that, you've got to make, you've got to give people an area they want to go. And I don't know about you, but after the winter, the last thing I want to do is go into a, a bar area at a ballpark and be surrounded by concrete. I, I don't want that. I want, you know, the sense of, of, of space. That to me is the most important thing. And then people can get into other things. People talk about concession prices. I mean, they're never going to go down. So, you know, forget about that. Uh, I, to me, the biggest thing is opening that area, bringing in more natural light. This is really kind of just me. I would change the seat colors too. Really? I really would. Yeah. Um, you just, you have to make it, you have to make it a little less overwhelming, a little less of a structure and more of a, of a ballpark. And, you know, keep in mind that I'm somebody who spent a large part of my life sitting in Olympic stadium. So as I always tell people, I know crap ballparks. I am the crap ballpark expert. And I, I don't look when the roof is open at the Rogers center, I think it's splendid when it's closed. It's like any other enclosed stadium. But again, if you have that open area with natural light, even if the roof is closed, at, at least you get the sense that you're outdoors. And my understanding is that is one of the real focal points of the design is creating more natural light and, um, and, and giving people that sense that they aren't, they necessarily haven't gone from the subway into the light into another building, that they're still, there's still some sort of connection to the outdoors. And if they can do that, that, that to me will be the most important thing. That's, that's really the only thing I think the Rogers Center needs to be a great ballpark. You kind of tied into my next question pretty great about talking about the old Olympic Stadium in, in Montreal because, you know, uh, as I don't know, I'm assuming most people know, but just in case they don't, you were a beat reporter for the Expos for many years and a Blue Jays beat reporter for many years. And I right. think, uh, at least from my perspective, a big part of beat reporting is, you know, having a good relationship with the manager, talking to the manager every day, because he's kind of the heartbeat of the team. Who was your favorite manager to not, I don't want to say work with, because you weren't really working with, them, right. but like interact with over your career? I mean, that would be, I've been lucky in that I haven't had, the only manager that I never, I wouldn't even say I didn't get along with, but the only manager that I never had much of a rapport with was uh, John Farrell um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I quite frankly thought that John Farrell, I thought the only, I thought the guy was gonna end up at Boston in Boston at some point, I, I, I just did. I always had this, this thought in the back of my, my brain. I never thought that he was necessarily sold on, uh, on, on the Blue Jays. Tom Runnels managed the Montreal Expos uh, when I was there and a, a little bit of time. I, I didn't like him necessarily. I shouldn't say I didn't like him. I just, he was not ready. He was not ready to manage. I mean, it was during the Gulf War, I believe, and Tom Runnels showed up for his first spring training in charge of the Montreal Expos and he had battle fatigues on you know he was trying to make a point to the player and of course the players kind of looked at him and said really like yeah so he was a little tone deaf the, the 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 manager I learned the most from was Felipe Alou without without question um and Felipe you could talk about it's the guy who was Henry Aaron's roommate and Joe Torrey's roommate, right? And Reggie Jackson looked up to him as a mentor when, when their paths crossed. So you'd be sitting in Felipe's office before a game. And this used to happen all the time in New York. I used to love it. You'd be sitting in Felipe's office before the game. And Reggie Jackson would just walk in, put his feet up, and he'd call him F all the time. Go, so F, what up? And it'd be in the middle of this, you know, the media conversation with the beat reporters and everything. And Felipe was always great at telling stories. And 
I'm going to see it. Did I bring this downstairs? This is okay. I'll, I'll, I'll show you this. I brought this down. I don't know if, if you can, I think it's probably going to be okay. You can see it, right? I'll show yeah. you John Franco, 1994, 306 left-handed, 222 right-handed, lifetime 289 left-handed, 249 right-handed. This is Felipe Alou. So I had been covering the beat for a while. John Franco screwballer came in and Felipe put a, uh, put a, put a, a right-handed, um, put a left-handed batter in to face John Frank, who was left-handed. I'm like, hold on. So I went downstairs after the game to interview Felipe, and um, you know, I asked him, just I said, look, not to second guess, which of course is an indication you're going to second guess, not to second guess, but you know, why did you leave this guy in to face John Franco? And he kind of talked his way around in circles and everything like that. And as I left, he said, can you come back in 10 minutes? And I said, sure. So I came back and he said, here. And this is the back of like an official batting order thing. He just slid this to me and I looked at it. Oh, I see. So John Franco, lefties are hitting 306 off him. And Felipe said, yes, that's because screwball works opposite to other pitches, lefties and righties. And you would get things like that with Felipe. He would teach you stuff, but he would never embarrass you and there was always a usually a parable to it as well you know he uh he was he was a fascinating guy i mean he's a guy who grew up in the dominican republic he played in the south he had to go through all the things henry aaron and other you know african-american players had to go through even though felipe was a dominican player he was a dark-skinned dominican player so he was treated the same so you were literally when you talk to Felipe Alou, you were literally getting a history lesson almost every time. And he also, he was just, he's the best, the best bullpen manager I have, I've seen. He, he, when the, when the Expos acquired Pedro Martinez, everybody said, ah, oh, he's too small. He wear it down. He's going to be a closer. Felipe said, no, he's going to be a starter. He's fine. Uh, but you know what he said? I'm going to take John Wetland and make him a closer. Wetland makes a ton of money. The Expos lose Wetland. Now who are they going to have for closer? Felipe says, you know, Mel Rojas, he can close. We're going, Mel Rojas. Boom, Mel Rojas ends up signing a free agent contract a couple of years later with the Cubs for a lot of money. Felipe had this way of handling a bullpen that it was almost, I don't even know how you describe it. It was almost magical. The number of times that you would, at the end of a game, look at his bullpen usage and you'd go, Jesus, the last at bat of the game, he had the platoon advantage. You know, you, it was just, there was always, he always seemed to be a step ahead of everybody else. So he was far and away, uh, far and away, my, my favorite to cover on a day-to-day -day basis. I loved Cito Gaston as well. John Gibbons was great. Buck Rogers was the first manager I covered, but in terms, and Jim Fergosi was, was hilarious. But in terms of day-to-day -day learning stuff that would be Felipe by far. Awesome. And uh, yeah, I think Curtis, unless you have anything else to ask Jeff, I think it's a good, good place to wrap it up. I, I know this is a hard question to ask quickly, Okay. but um, we're already talking about Montreal and right. you know, there's been a lot of like little storms popping up about, Oh, are the Expos a possible return? Like is there's mm -hmm. obviously an ownership group that has interest in bringing back the Expos. Uh, do you think it's going to happen? Do you think it's possible for the Expos to come back in the modern day MLB? I I'll tell you what, I was one of the few people that thought that the sister cities concept could work uh, with the Rays in Montreal for a variety of reasons. First of all, I think there was an there was an assumption on the part of a lot of us that for it to get as far as it got there had to have been some discussion with the players association but look if this happens there will be a financial there, there will be a way of making it up so the guys who play on the raise and their families aren't going to be screwed by moving uh moving back and forth i also have to admit that um i know two of the owners in the montreal group personally and um one um Mitch Garber, who uh, I, I don't know what I don't know what Mitch does now. He's on the French language version of Dra Dragons Den. 
He's a former lawyer. He's worked for Caesars Acquisitions and all that. He actually used to host a sports talk show in Montreal uh, when I was writing a late night sports talk show, which he'd just do for yucks. So he was part of the ownership group. And I, I, I knew I had an idea of what was going on behind the scenes with these guys. I thought there was a chance that they could make it go. But having seen what happened and having heard Stephen Bronfman at his news conference after it fell through, I just don't think there's a chance anymore that baseball will be returning to Montreal. And it's a shame because they made real, they managed to overcome some things that the Montreal Expos were never able to overcome in their dying days. And I will go to my grave. I understand people in Montreal don't like Jeffrey Laurie and David Sampson. I'll go to my grave saying that the reason baseball left Montreal was because of local, a lack of local political will and a lack of local business will. Jeffrey Laurie just saw an opportunity to come in and buy a team and move it. You know, this ownership group, Stephen Bronfman and his group managed to jump through some hurdles or jump through some hoops that other ownership groups haven't been able to do, getting support from the business community, getting support from the province and the city. And I don't know once that momentum dies, how you get it going again. Um, so I think that as a result of that, we've we, we probably won't see baseball again in Montreal. It's too bad because this commissioner, Rob Manfred, one of his legacy plays is going to be making the game international. He's, if you spoke to people who know him, they'll tell you, he wants a team in Mexico. He wants to increase the international footprint of baseball. And I really think he's a guy who would have been open to, to, to Montreal. But I also think in some ways the, Rays slash Expos ownership group was a victim of their own success because things move so quickly that I think other owners in baseball, especially those in the, on the executive council said, whoa, wait a minute. Like these guys are serious. You know, it's not, yeah, yeah, go ahead and do this and maybe you'll get a new ballpark in Tampa. It's, oh my God, they think this is going to work. So we, we have to make a decision right now. Uh, it's a shame because I think they would have been great owners in Montreal. I think knowing what they were planning to do with the ballpark, it would have been great. And I really do believe what Stuart Sternberg, the Rays owner said, I think ultimately we are going to see more teams split cities in order to make, in order to make financing work. I don't think it's the last time we will hear whether it's an NBA or an NHL team or an MLB team. It's, it's not the last time we're going to hear this notion of, of, uh, of city sharing teams. I think it's, it's probably going to be the way to go. And just to wrap things up uh, one more thing. And th this is it for me. Um, a few, a few weeks ago on at the letters, uh, Ben Nicholson Smith and Arden Zwelling were talking about Vladdy and Bo extensions and the mm -hmm. possibilities there. Do you think they're correct in assuming that they should probably be signed very close together Um in terms of actually both of them agreeing to a deal, because if one signs before the other one, one of them may get upset because they weren't the priority kind of thing. Don't know. These are, these are two different kids. They're both, both of them come from major league families. Neither of them. I mean, I think with all due respect, neither of them need the money. They're not going to cut the, they're not going to cut the Jays a, a, a hometown discount because they're not their families again in Vladdy's case Vladdy's dad made a ton of money Dante made a ton of money I don't think it's that big a deal if Vladdy signs first because I think they're if you look at at where they are right now I think most people look at their service time and they've kind of got Vladdy in a different, almost a year ahead of Bo anyhow. So I think if they were to get Vladdy signed initially, I don't think Bo would have a problem with it. Now, if they sign Vladdy and two years down the road, Bo doesn't have a contract, then maybe we could, we could have an issue, but I don't see it working out if somehow they sign Bo first, because now you're, 
you've signed the guy who's got a little less service time first. If you do that, people are going to say, okay, what message are you sending? Are you signing Bo because you think he's going to be in, that his body's going to hold up more than Vladdy's body is going to hold up four or five years down the road? So I think from the Blue Jays' point of view, there's less risk signing Vladdy first and then signing Bo. So I won't be, I don't necessarily buy that they have to sign at the same time. Where I think things get complicated is if, is if Bo signs before Vladdy. And I just, I don't see the Jays approaching it that way. Um, because I think the stuff that I've said, if it's apparent to me, I think it would be apparent to them as well. But I will say this, I think they're both going to be signed. I, I have no doubt that they're, they will both be under contract uh on a long-term basis with the blue jays and and you know what three or four years ago when they were first came up i don't know if i would have said that i would have looked and thought yeah given the way the jays are spending money i don't know if they can afford these two guys you know i think ownership is showing that they're they're prepared to invest a lot of money in this team i honestly think there'd be a revolt in the blue jays fan base if if one of them left at least after this first deal, like, I guess you can understand after, you know, the first contract of arbitration, you know, they're on the older side of things, new team, new opportunity, the team. I mean, that's, that's possibly eight, 10, like years down the line, but. Oh yeah. But you know, you listen, you, you, I mean, you make a great point. Not only are they both, not only are they both terrific players, generational players, they're hugely popular. And they have something that very few players in baseball have. And that is that they've got this large national fan base because they're the only team in Canada. And um, for the Blue Jays, it's very much an important part of their marketing to keep these, to keep these two guys happy. And, you know, never mind that they're also, I mean, if you got those two guys in the lineup, you're well in your way to a playoff team every year yeah and i think that's a perfect way to wrap things up uh it's been a privilege to have you on the show jeff and uh yeah thank you for coming on no no problem thank you i enjoyed it yes we really appreciate you coming on jeff have a good one thanks you too our interview with Jeff Blair. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to him. Uh, we had a great time. A lot of good stuff from Jeff. Um, so Jeff, thank you again for coming on. As everything was going on, um, we are pleased to announce that uh, the MOB lockout is over. And um, it's, it's a great day for baseball. It's a great day for the Blue Jays Way podcast um, and plenty of great, great things to come. Uh, this season for sure. Uh, Curtis, what are your thoughts on everything being wrapped up and how excited are you to watch the Blue Jays in a couple of weeks? I'm, you know, I'm hyped, man. I, I can't even express it. It's really exciting to have this, all this bickering finally over with. And, you know, we're going to see baseball fly, you know, a lot later than we expected. Um, well, not a lot later, like a week or two later Yeah. in, in April. But a funny thing is I saw that it will be on the anniversary of the first game that the Blue Jays ever played 45 45th years yeah yeah it's so awesome. it's it's kind of fitting that that's the way it's going to work out so looking forward to it I'm glad that the players and ours were able to come to um, an agreement and I, we talked a little bit about <clears throat> with Jeff sorry about what the new changes are going to be with the band with the shift and all that stuff um, in our next podcast we'll dive more deeper into what exactly this new CBA means but for now I think me and Tyler are just happy to finally actually get to cover baseball again. For sure. And expect a lot coming from the baseball section coming up. And, you know, as we wrap up the school portion of most of our, most of our writers are students. Um, you know, it's going to be a busy little end of the month and into April, but uh, it's super exciting and it's going to be really fun to cover the team this year. Um Unless you got anything else, Curtis, I think a great team. I think it's a great time to get some plugs in. Do we, do we, uh, do we 
quickly talk about the minor league signings that they made today, or do we just leave that for another pod? Um, I mean, we can go in more detail in the next episode, uh, considering hopefully they'll signed and traded for more people by then. But uh, Joe Biagini and Greg Bird, right? Greg Bird. Yeah, yeah, Greg, yeah Bird. Greg Bird are now both minor league Blue Jays. Um, just reaction to what happened i'm really happy to have joe biagini in our system he's one of the funniest players in the league not even for his his play on the field and that's no insult to you joe we'd love to have you on the podcast you're just a great personality yeah no he's he's great and uh, that's a great guy to have in the clubhouse if you can crack the major league roster um i mean that would be fantastic um but yeah if you want to say anything about that but otherwise we're into plug time all right now we can go plug time Alrighty. Well, for, for me, you can follow me on Twitter on my very uh, explosive reaction of this, this lockout ending uh, at Prosec Tyler, P-R-O-C-Y-K Tyler. Um, and follow me on my new Instagram, which I always, always, always forget what it is, but I'm going to go look and it's going to take me two seconds. You can follow me on Instagram at T-Prosec underscore. Um, I constantly forget ever since I made a new one. Um, and like I said, lots of baseball stuff should be coming out very soon. Um, I'm I'm hoping, uh, as Curtis and I will probably talk about the CBA uh, in detail in the next Blue Jays Way episode, but I'm hoping to get it written in an article, um, just explaining, you know, simplifying what 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 they were arguing about, why they were arguing about it, and what's next, and you know, all that fun stuff. Uh, all the new rules and all of the stuff like that. But uh, yeah, that's it for me. Uh, very exciting. Very, 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 very excited for opening day. Uh, it's Marcus Simeon's return to Toronto uh, in the Jays' first series of the season. So that's it for me. Curtis, take it away. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at cmartin2292. Uh, as I've already plugged on this podcast, photography account at Curtis Martin Photography. You can check that out. Uh, on my Twitter, you can follow. Sorry, you can follow me on Twitter, and that's at uh, Curtis Martin three eight seven six. You know, don't have that check mark, so it can't just be at Curtis Martin at this point. So you know, we're, we're working to get there. We're working to get there. Maybe, maybe Jeff, Jeff can help me out. Maybe he can help me get that blue check mark. But um, other than that, yeah, not a whole lot going on. Obviously, the NHL trade deadline is going to be coming up in a couple weeks. So look forward to that um as of time of this released i and tyler were released uh articles on awards uh ty's already come out as a time of recording for his article talking about the uh, jack adams award and his picks for that and my colder one will hopefully be up as you're listening to this maybe it's not but hopefully it is and other than that you know i'm just looking forward for you know since the season's starting we'll be back to once a week i would imagine with spring training starting up and then once season goes we're gonna be back on that roll man we'll be back on that one episode grind. Grind. yeah uh thanks again everyone for listening uh you can follow us on instagram at otl sports ca um, and go check out the website as well um thanks for listening and thank you again for jeff for joining us in that great interview we'll see you next time some people think i'm crazy i think i'm amazing with all the things that i